Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are continuing our series in the book of Exodus. And today we're talking about confronting pharaohs. Before we start with our opening question, I want to tell you a little story. I have a friend who every day when he goes to the bathroom mirror, there's two sticky notes. One sticky note says, trust God today and don't worry about anything. And the other sticky note says, don't trust God today and worry about everything. It may sound trite and too simple, but maybe there's some deep wisdom there for all of us. So the question is, which sticky note are you picking today? Enjoy. So we have arrived in the book of Exodus at the moment where Moses is about to finally confront Pharaoh. And we began this series with this idea that we have to begin to name some Pharaohs first in our life. And it's taken us nine weeks to get to a place of actually confronting those Pharaohs. One of the most interesting things about the book of Exodus is that it never names who Pharaoh is. And it's the Bible giving you this wink, wink, nudge, nudge into this reality that what we do at times with the Bible is that we read it as this historical document, that somehow we read it about stories that happened in the past. Uh, Something happened in Egypt 3,500 years ago, or we read the stories of Jesus as something that happened 2,000 years ago, and that's not how you're supposed to read the Bible. The Bible is supposed to be living and active and moving. You're not supposed to read a story about 2,000 years ago about Jesus confronting a Samaritan because you don't know Samaritans. You need to name the people in your life that you would never want to be around, and now the story has meaning, right? And so we're not talking about pharaohs and confronting them of the most powerful person who ever lived at the time who built the pyramids 3,500 years ago. We're talking about the pharaohs that are actually doing something in your life right now. And so today, as we talk about confronting pharaohs, we're going to look at the individual pharaohs that we all have, the things within us, the things that we deal with, the pains and the problems that we each have as individuals. And then we're also going to talk about the systemic pharaohs of our culture. And that as we get better at naming those as we go through this series of Exodus, and we'll also get better at finding some practical ways to actually confront the pharaohs in our world. Before we get there, we've got to do a little bit of work. So we've got to talk about captivity and Second Temple Judaism. Everybody got excited. All right. Uh, And then we're going to talk about rivers because you do that. And then we're going to talk about Vancouver, and then probably a little bit of Napoleon and Martin Luther King Jr., and then we'll close it out with the cross, and you'll see where we're going when we get there. So, uh, Second Temple Judaism, and everybody said, can I get some more, please? You can. All right. 
the consciousness of the Bible comes out of this period of time called Second Temple Judaism. It's a period between 586 BC when the first temple uh, that was built by Solomon is destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. That temple will eventually be rebuilt and will be destroyed. A second temple will now be destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman Empire. What you need to understand is that the thought process of the Bible is being developed during this period of time. Here's what's being developed. You have a minority group of people called the Israelites who have a God that they serve. They happen to be the only people group in the ancient world who get destroyed by a superpower and maintain their allegiance and their faith to their God as in there is no other people group in the entire ancient world in which that is true of as well. Because what happened in the ancient world was this, a bigger, more powerful empire would come along and destroy your civilization. And so you did something. You would now follow their God because clearly their God was more powerful than your God. But that's not how the Israelites saw it. They begin to develop a viewpoint from the oppressed point of view that says, no, 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 no. God is not on the side of the empires because there will always be a new and more powerful empire. And new and more powerful empires always do the same thing. They kill and they destroy. And they use their power to do that, right? But the view from the oppressed is, this God cares about the people at the very bottom. And if this God can care about the people at the very bottom, then this God will also care about everyone all the way up. It's reverse trickle economics, right? Versus the other viewpoints of the other gods in most of history is, no, 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 the powerful gods win. And then those gods benefit generally the people on top. And maybe the people at the bottom will get a little love sometimes. And that's why it's complete reverse thinking. And so the Bible or the Old Testament in particular was put together during this second temple period. So all of the books of the Old Testament are chosen out of this consciousness. What is telling the best story about a God who defends the weak and the oppressed in this world? That's critically important for you to understand. The book of Exodus is all about a God who confronts pharaohs and empires and systems in this world that oppress and that hurt the little guy. And this God comes along and says, and I care about all the little gals and guys in this world. They're incredibly important to me. That consciousness is also the consciousness that shapes and prepares the way for Jesus, right? Because they're all confused about who this Jesus is. This Jesus didn't come to do what you would expect Jesus to do. He didn't come and participate in the power structures of the empires. That's why Jesus's words of, right, that he is coming to prepare the kingdom are so revolutionary for the time. We often, in our very powerful superpower context, speak of kingdom in our culture as something that happens later because we're powerful. But that's not how Jesus saw it. The kingdom that Jesus is speaking about is a kingdom that was reversing the power structures of the kingdoms of his day. So imagine that you were living in the Roman Empire, 
right? And there's a powerful structure like Caesar out there that is saying, if you do not bow and if you do not submit, I will kill you. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 I'm gonna invite all of you into a different kind of kingdom. And guess what? It doesn't matter if you're Caesar. Even if you are the slave in this kingdom, you now have a voice. Even if you are the most oppressed in this kingdom, this God says to you, you are my beloved. You are my child. And even with you, I am well pleased. That is changing the power structures of the world, which is incredibly important. You need to know that as we keep going through the book of Exodus, because we have been trained to read the Bible in a different way because we are the most powerful superpower that the world has ever seen. And so we do not read the Bible in the way that the Bible was actually put together because we're powerful people and it was written to the power of lists. And so we have to reverse our own consciousness and our own understanding to be able to engage the scriptures in new and in fresh ways. So with that said, let's read a little bit of the book of Exodus. Exodus 5 is where we're starting today. Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. Pause. I love verses like this. I need these. A third of the Psalms are lament psalms. A good portion of the Bible are words that say, God, I don't actually think you do a very good job running the universe. The Bible's okay with that, right? Even Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Moses here is saying, here's the deal, God, the burning bush, I know you met me, I've been in the desert for 40 years, now you want me to go speak to Pharaoh? I'm not actually sure you know what you're doing here. And how many of us said, oh, I've had many days like that, right? And how many, of us been, how many of us have been told, you're not supposed to talk to God that way. You're not supposed to question his grand plans. And people give you some trite verse where you're like, no, 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 today is, why, Lord? Have you brought this upon me? I'm not very interested in this current plan. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham. By the way, you're gonna notice all of the eyes that are coming up here. As we confront Pharaoh, what's incredibly important to know is, is that first that God is ahead of us as we confront Pharaoh. But it's not a cheap theology where God is ahead goes and sprinkles magical fairy dust all over our pains and our troubles, and we never have to confront them. Some of us have been spoon-fed those kind of theologies, and they do not work. And so we have to realize God is ahead. God is the one who is able to confront, but then God always invites us in to confront Pharaoh as well. That's why we call it incarnation, right? That the divine and the human work together that in Jesus, we see the fullness of what God is doing and the very best way for us to be human. So God is ahead, but it also means 
you've got a part to play in this as well. Anyways, back to the story, and God is about to tell Moses what's up. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgments. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. If you don't read Hebrew, let me get, let you in on a couple of the subtle nuances of what God's trying to say here. I think he's trying to say, I'm gonna whoop some ass. Okay, that's what God is trying to say. I'm the one who's got this. I'm the one who's gonna move forward and ahead of this thing, but then I'm gonna invite you into the process as well. Then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. Oh, sorry, Moses reported this. Sorry, I almost missed the most important verse here for me. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Again, I love this verse as well right? Moses complains to God. God comes back with, I got this. I'm going to take care of it. I'm the one who's going to do the whooping here. Moses is like, okay, I feel a little bit more confident. I'm going to go tell the Israelites about this. And they hear it. And then they're also having a bad day as well. And they're like, we don't care. Great. I'm glad that God talked to you. Because the last time that God talked to you, Pharaoh oppressed us more. That's real. That's a real narrative that happens all the time in history. How many oppressed groups are, right? We just went through this with all of the Vegas shooting stuff. People saying, I'm sick of your prayers. Your prayers aren't doing anything for me right now because there's still 59 people who died in a shooting. And sometimes you might have a great revelation from the Lord and people are saying, I'm just not buying it. And somehow the scriptures are okay with that process. And it's okay with that journey saying, yeah, that's a part of the human experience. And God's going to work with even that. So then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. Again, God says, I've got this, but now Moses, you also have a part to play in the story. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. All right, here we go. So there's a river. At the bottom of the river is where all the trash kind of builds up. And every day you go to the river and you take one piece of trash out at a time because you love the river. This river, in fact, is your life. And so as you take one piece of trash out of time, that's the most that you can do today. That's the most that you can carry as you come to the river. And then maybe if you're wise, you'll invite other people to the river as well, and they will also grab a couple pieces of trash out, and they're going to help you clean up the river of your life. But later on, however, if you get a little wiser about it, you're going to go upstream. 
and you're going to realize, oh, there's a trash company up here who's dumping trash into the river. And this is the truth of the story of all of our lives. There's the bottom of the river, which we all spend lots of time in, and where we are individually taking out one piece of trash at a time, trying to deal with our lives. And there's also some things upstream upriver, which are completely out of your control. There are systems that are shaping you and developing you, whether you want it to or not. And other people are putting trash in the river of your life, and it is beyond anything that you can do. And so you have to be conscious of both sides of the river. And you have to somehow have a part to play in them. And so God is ahead of us in dealing with the river in the individual pharaohs that we have and what's going on downstream. And God is ahead of us in dealing with the systems that are going on upstream. But first, let's begin with what's happening down the river and the individual pharaohs that we deal with. Our individual pharaohs are as unique as each of us are unique. You all have a pharaoh in your life or pharaohs that oppress you, that shape you, that lord and will something over you every single day. It can be as simple as your ego or your insecurities or your family of origins or the unique pains and wounds that are true to you. It could be your addictions. I don't know what it is, but the truth is we all have a Pharaoh that is going on within us. The challenge with that Pharaoh is we haven't been taught in our culture and even in our church culture how to deal with these individual Pharaohs very well. In fact, we live in a culture that says, I'd rather just not deal with the Pharaohs at all, to be honest. I would rather avoid the Pharaohs at all costs, the hard work that it will take to actually confront Pharaoh. And we live in a wonderful society that says, Just distract yourself, my friend, because that's way more fun than dealing with the pharaohs in your life. I love this quote from a book called Spirit Level. It says this, It is a remarkable paradox that at the pinnacle of human material and technical achievement, we find ourselves anxiety-ridden, prone to depression, worried about how others see us, unsure of our friendships, driven to consume and with little or no community life lacking the relaxed social context and emotional satisfaction we all need, we seek comfort in overeating, obsessive shopping and spending, or become prey to excessive alcohol, psychoactive medicines, and illegal drugs. How is it that we have created so much mental and emotional suffering despite levels of wealth and comfort unprecedented in human history? This is an incredible book written by two Oxford PhDs who compare uh, the fact that in societies where there's a larger gap between the rich and the poor, that actually the rich are more unsatisfied as well, right? So that the systems that are out there shape all of us. But where this quote is fascinating to me is this. Again, we live in a society where we know that we have all kinds of pharaohs going on within us, but we would rather distract ourselves. I would rather distract myself. I would much rather turn on Netflix and have one, two, three beers than deal with my pharaohs at the end of a long day. And I think what's challenging about that is that we've also been fed a lazy gospel in which it is said, okay, 
Here's how we're going to deal with pharaohs. We're going to create systems and churches and structures that distract us and never actually allow us to confront those pharaohs either. And so we even build church in such a way where we do turn up the lights and we do turn up the music and we want to be entertained. But those systems don't always create for us an opportunity to actually confront the real pharaohs in our life. And so we can go into those spaces and we've all been there where we've raised our hand and we've gone forward on that altar call or we've stood up or we've signed that pledge card, but on Monday, our lives were still the same. Because you can turn up the music, but that doesn't actually confront the Pharaoh. When Krista turned 30, we went to Vancouver and I surprised her for her birthday. And so we got to the airport that day and we're talking to the people at the front, you know, in the airport getting our tickets and I'm telling them what I'm doing, that I'm surprising her. They said, the only way this weekend would get better is if you gave us first class seats. And they said, okay. So we get in our first class seats and we get to Vancouver and we get to our hotel that night. And I got some like four seasons package because I'm like Expedia was somehow cheaper than Marriott. So I'm like, Click, thank you. And so I get to the Four Seasons that night in Vancouver, and they say, sir, I'm so sorry to tell you this, uh, but there's been a, a, a pipe that broke in your room, and we don't have any other comparable rooms. So we're going to have to put you, like, on a couch in another room. And I said, or I surprised my wife for her birthday, and the only thing that would make this weekend better is if you gave us the presidential suite. And they said, Okay. So now I'm in a 3,500 two-story presidential suite on top of the Vancouver where we have two bedrooms to ourselves. We have a dining room and a ballroom and a kitchen and all these other things because, you know, I'm kind of presidential. And uh, which room do you want to sleep in tonight, babe? And so, uh, yeah, we're having a good time. And this weekend kind of just kept rolling that way. And then we are leaving Vancouver, exiting our presidential suite, and we get back, you know, to the airport, and they're saying, how was your time in Canada? And I said, oh, we had this amazing time. I surprised my wife, but the only thing that would make this better is if you gave us first-class seats on the way back. And they said, okay. So now I'm on my first-class seats on the way back home, but then I got to LAX, and I got in my Jetta and came back to my apartment. <laughs> That's real life, right? We, we want to live the Vancouver dream, but I still had to come back to my real life. And that's what happens to so many of us sometimes in a cheap theology or a church experience that actually doesn't confront our pharaohs. For a while, for a few moments, it felt a lot better, but then you still got to come back to real life. I used to be a speaker at Hume Lake, and one uh, passage that I would always cover at Hume Lake was the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. Because I knew that these young people had just had an emotional experience. They had raised their hands. And I'm not questioning it at all. I genuinely believe that they encountered God and that God encountered them in that moment. Everything is designed for that to happen. But I also know that they're gonna get back on a bus and they're gonna drive home and their families are still there. And they're going to go back to school and the bullies haven't left. And they're going to go back home and those that cut might still keep cutting. And those that have addictions might still have their addictions. And those that wanted to stop giving their bodies away might still give their bodies away. 
And so I always told the story of the Mount of Transfiguration for a reason, because Jesus and three of his disciples went up to the mountain and they saw Moses and they saw Elijah and a voice from God came down. But the story that happens right after that is that those three disciples go down the mountain and it says this, the other disciples were waiting there for them and said, hey dudes, when you guys were gone, we tried casting a bunch of demons out of people and we can't figure it out. Even when you go up to the mountain to meet God, you're gonna come right back down and those demons and those pharaohs and those things that were there before haven't gone anywhere. So we can keep distracting ourselves with our Netflix or you insert whatever it is for you. And we can continue to live in a church culture where we will turn up the music and crank those fog machines, my friends. And you may encounter God in those spaces but you will on Monday have to go back to your real life. And the question for you is, have you done what you need to do to confront the real pharaohs that are in your life? For me, this is why I personally love things like 12-step groups, because I think it's very pragmatic. In 12-step groups, the very first step is to admit that you're powerless, to admit the fact that you don't have this, and to get to a place of saying, all the lights gotta come down so I can say, I gotta surrender the outcomes of my life somehow because I can't continue the insanity that's going on. And the next few steps are saying, yeah, I admit that there's a God. I admit that there's something more powerful in my life because if I gotta keep figuring it out on my own, I just don't know if it's gonna work out for me. And so the question for you is, are you at a place where you can begin to surrender some of the outcomes, where you can begin to authentically and honestly confront some of the individual pharaohs that are going on and what would that look like in your life? We're going to talk about the systemic pharaohs, but before I do that, I want to talk about Brene Brown, and I brought Brene Brown up in here a thousand times because I love one of her quotes, and it goes like this, your healing is directly dependent upon my healing, and my healing is directly dependent upon your healing. If I don't confront the pharaohs that are going on in my life, if I'm not dealing with the trash that's going on at the bottom of my river, it will leak and it will affect your life. That's just the way that it works. You can go to any conference you want, but, right, you still got to come back to real life. And so it's all of our responsibility to deal with our individual pharaohs, because when we don't do that, then interestingly enough, we become little pharaohs ourselves. And when we become little pharaohs, sometimes these little pharaohs get a little extra power and those kind of pharaohs now create systems. And those kind of systems now affect lots of people. So now we move up river and we talk about the systemic pharaohs that affect all of us. And those pharaohs are just as unique in our world as our individual pharaohs are, right? There are pharaohs that affect, systemic pharaohs that affect all kinds of people. Uh, it could be your race. It could be your sexuality. There are economic pharaohs. There are political pharaohs. There are institutional pharaohs. And many of those pharaohs are just way bigger than any of us. But one of the things that I believe most honestly about those pharaohs is that we truly do need God to move forward ahead of us with the systemic pharaohs that are bigger than us. And I love the quote from Martin Luther King Jr., which you've all heard multiple times. Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. 
At any given moment in the history of humanity, there are pharaohs oppressing the little people in this world. That's just the way the world works, unfortunately. But what I also believe is that over time, God confronts those pharaohs faithfully and that God invites people into the difficult task of confronting those pharaohs as well. So although I do not believe that racism has anywhere near ended in the United States, I want to believe that it is getting better than it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Although I believe we have a long way to go towards making sure that women get equal pay and are treated in a better manner in the United States, I also know that 100 years ago, women weren't able to vote. And I can go on and on through the moral arc of history and believe things are moving in a bigger direction. What I love about the scriptures is, again, they're not meant to be concrete somewhere back in time, and thank God for that. The scriptures speak about slavery in such a way that it tells masters to treat their slaves in a certain way and for slaves to treat their masters in a certain way. But what the scriptures are pointing towards is the telos of God, the trajectory of God, the final hopes of God, which are there will be a day where there are not slaves and masters. The scriptural time in history never got there, but can we get there in trusting that God is still gonna be ahead of us and that we can participate in combating the pharaohs of this world? And so we're all invited to confront the systems of the world as well, just as much as we're invited to confront the individual pharaohs of our world. And I think a little bit about the Vegas shootings that happened, I think, just three weeks ago. That's crazy. How fast our world moves on after a crazy tragedy like that. And in that moment, I need these kind of passages because I have to believe that God is ahead, but I also have to believe that we have a part to play. So I'm not completely on board with people who say, I don't need your prayers. I think we desperately need our prayers. I think we desperately need a God who is somehow ahead of us on the moral arc of this thing. At the same time, I think we desperately need to participate in the conversation as well. Because you can offer information. You can tell people about gun statistics. You can talk to people about semiotic weapons. You can do all of those things, and we know that it doesn't change people's opinions or thoughts. Some information might change people's opinions or thoughts if it's a personal narrative, that often has a better chance than talking about certain gun laws and counties and whatever all that stuff means. So there's a part to play. Many of us want a reformation. Well, if we just legislate some things, that'll change everything. No, what it will never do is take the, the fact that there are 400 million guns in the United States already. Already! We don't have to make any new ones, and those guns are not going away for a millennia. What we need is transformation. You can change the information, you can hope for a reformation, but only God can do the transformation part. We have a part to play, but we have to trust that God is ahead. Who else can change hearts? I can't change the heart of somebody who wants to murder people. I can't change the heart of people who have hate in this world. So we can somehow need a force greater than ourselves, and at the same time, we have to participate in a conversation in an effective way. And so the scriptures are always inviting us into both, trusting the fact that God is ahead, even when it doesn't look like it in the moment, and asking you to participate against the systemic pharaohs 
that are crushing us in our world all the time. And so now Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of God being ahead. Jesus goes to the cross by himself. Uh, Again, the cross is not this cheap gospel which says, Jesus goes to the cross and takes care of everything. Now your life's gonna be okay. Don't worry about anything else after you've said the magical prayer. How'd that work out for you? The story of Jesus going to the cross is, I'm going to go there first and take on all of the individual pharaohs of this world in pain and brokenness and take on the greatest systems of the world, including the Roman Empire, the broken religious systems, sin, death, the forces unseen, all of it I take on so that one day you too will go to the cross. This is not just a metaphor. This is an invitation into, right? If you want to find your life, you got to lose it. This is an invitation into God's going to go ahead of you, but you also have to participate in this thing as well. The story of Christ, the story of the cross is that God is out front confronting the pharaohs, but you too have to participate in the narrative. We're going to end with some questions with one another. What pharaoh do you need to confront and how is God ahead of you in confronting this pharaoh? Find the same three or four people that you were talking with before. Have this conversation. We'll come back together soon. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.